You should have gotten the uh, email, hopefully, with the list of uh, classes we're looking to do. We're looking to do uh, Elijah and Elisha, and then we'll do Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. Uh, we'll try to get through those this semester. And then uh, concluding that, right now the thinking is, is that maybe we would uh, go back to the Book of Mormon in uh, next September. Kind of go from there. But a lot of that depends on how long it takes us to get through Isaiah. Uh, I'm looking forward to kind of being able to do Isaiah the way I'd like to do Isaiah. Um, this a lot over here. Am I really? You know what? I'll bet if we did this. Yep. That's exactly what it needs to happen. Well, a lot of times if I can... I have it like that. I'm probably still wondering, how come I've got a bagpiper? And what does that have to do with Elijah? Oh, I need the book. I can spot that one a little bit from here. All right. This will be a good way for us to get started today. And, and John over here, who's a big piper, uh, you'll like this one. You may, be, may even have heard this one. As a bagpiper, I play many gigs. Recently, I was asked by a funeral director to play the graveside service for a homeless man. He had no family and friends, so the service was to be a pauper cemetery at the Nova Scotia backcountry. As I was not familiar with the backwoods, I got lost, and being a typical man, I didn't stop for directions. I finally arrived an hour late and saw the funeral guy had evidently gone, and the hearse was nowhere in sight. There were only beggars and a crew left, or beggars, diggers, diggers and the crew left, and they were eating lunch. You know, with my cold, anything could, I could say anything. And, and so I actually have an off on this one. You can just say, oh, well, he was just kind of sick. I felt badly and apologized to the men for being late. I went to the side of the grave and I looked down and the vault lid was already in place. I didn't know what else to do, so I started to play. The workers put down their lunches and began to gather around. I played my heart out and soul for this man who had no family and friends. I played like I'd never played before for this homeless man. And as I played Amazing Grace, uh, the workers began to weep. They wept. I wept. We all wept together. When I finished, I packed up my bagpipes and started for my car. Though my head hung low, my heart was full. As I opened the, car, the door to my car, I heard one of the workers say, I've never seen anything like that before, and I've been putting in septic tanks for 20 years. <laughs> Apparently, I'm still lost. <laughs> and it's a man thing. <laughs> uh, you ever played for a funeral... Okay. And certainly not one for a septic tank. That is funny. 
Okay. Well, that said, then let's go ahead and uh, and dive in. Um, it's interesting when we start talking about uh, looking at scriptures in the Old Testament. Part of uh, what happens with this is that we've got this long. All these many years of these records being around, and so sometimes we begin to wonder just how accurate they are, and and uh, and yet these stories here are are so vital to us. It's it's like sometimes when we have tried as Latter Day Saints, to, someone says, "Well, are we Christian?" Well, yeah, but we're not really Christian the way that most people think Christian in so many cases. The question should be, are we Jewish? You know, are we more Jewish or are we more Christian? Uh, we are a new Christian, we're a new religious tradition, and yet we're very old. It's hard to, we have to position the church halfway between Judaism and Christianity, because we're both. Christ meant it to be a combination of the two. Because the Old Testament wasn't one religion and then we're done with that one, we move on to the next one. It is a blending, it's a mix of both. And so when we start looking at the Old Testament, this is as much our history as is the New Testament. Because we are, if, on one side we have Christ and the atonement and the sacrament and all that, but at the same time we have Zion and priesthood and Melchizedek and temples. We're very much a blending of both. And so as we start looking really into antiquity, we're seeing as much, this appeals to us as much as does Peter, James, and John. Now, where this gets kind of interesting, though, is that now we have non-LDS archaeologists. Um, and I want to make sure that it's non-LDS, because I'm just going to, this is what they're saying out there. And you can, and I'm not going to do a lot of commentary on this, I just need you to hear when they look at, at, the, at the Old Testament and the gods they worship, here's what they're saying. And I, and I keep reading this over and over in a variety of places. First of all, they believe <coughs> that the ancient Hebrew god, the farther back they can push, they believe that uh, the ancient Hebrew god was a god by the name of El, short for Elohim, and that he had a wife, and her name was Asherah, or Asherah. Her symbol was the tree of life. The farther back they push into antiquity. Okay? Then as they then as they start coming forward a couple of thousand years, they can see that uh, the God that is worshipped in Israel is Yahweh or Jehovah. And Jehovah the, the great god Jehovah had a wife. Her name was Asherah. They had taken the wife of El and made her the wife of Jehovah. Uh, again, her symbol is the tree of life, or a lot of time it's a wooden pole. Um, and with, with her image on it. it um, it's kind of the belief that maybe the in the... Um, the, the, the wilderness of the children of Israel, that pole that was placed that, that they needed to, that the children of Israel needed to look up at after they had been uh, bitten by the snakes, 
might have been an Asherah pole. Now, it would make sense then, and so why are we talking about this now? As, as Israel became more apostate, especially the, the upper ten tribes, as they broke off from Judah, and we get into the idol-worshipping nations like the Canaanites and the Phoenicians, uh, interesting enough, they had their god, and this was Baal, or Baal. And, and Baal, uh, the god of thunder, the god of storms, uh, he also has a wife. And they have kind of brought that down. And so now Asherah, or Asherah, is the, is the wife of Baal, Baal. And, then, and so now you get to see kind of this twisting a little bit that happens as they become apostate. Uh, and so Asherah uh, becomes the goddess of fertility. And the way that this is symbolized in the Baal cult would have been the, the groves of trees. In fact, if you look, anytime you see the word groves in the Bible, it translates to Asherah. And so part of the fertility of that is they would practice a lot of sexual things in the groves. And they're talking about don't go to the groves, or they destroy the groves, or they cut down the groves. And we're going to talk about that a lot uh, as we go through the Old Testament. And that's really what this is going back to, is, is Asherah. Um, she's going to play a pretty prominent role in what we're going to talk about today. Okay. So, let's start. We're going to start in the, the book of 1 Kings. And we'll go to 1 Kings 16. We're going to talk about Bad, Bad Ahab. time where um, the, the kingdoms have split. We have Judah and Benjamin down in around Jerusalem. The ten tribes are out near the northern part of Israel. This is the ten tribes that ultimately become lost. They're up towards the north part. The king up there is uh, Ahab. Um, and Ahab, verse 30, the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all those who were before him. So you get an idea. There are a lot of wicked kings. He's the worst. And then, then look at the phrase in verse 31. I, I think it's kind of a little, uh, little bit of a tease here. And it came to pass that if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jerusalem, if that wasn't bad enough, it had been a light thing to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. He took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ephbal, king of the Huhu, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Why would he marry a Phoenician princess? Why would you do that? Why? A political, sure. 
The Phoenicians are, are large, they're powerful, they're, they're right next door. So one of the reasons for doing that would be to, to protect yourself. By, and didn't the ancient kings do that a lot? And marry my daughter off to the son of the king or whoever, and then we'll combine the nations, and you'll leave us alone. It'll be nice to us. You won't attack your grandkids. Right? So he's going to do that. Now, so he's going to marry Jezebel. Um, now, sometimes when, when we get married, um, I, I talk to people a lot, and they have, they have married a spouse who brought with them a lot of baggage. Well, in marrying Jezebel, uh, she brought the whole, uh, yeah, she, uh, she brought a lot of baggage. Yeah, she brought the trunks. Yeah, no baggage claim. Cause she's gonna bring with her Baal worship. So he's gonna rear uh, up an altar, thirty-two, uh, for Baal in the house of Baal, uh, which he built in Samaria. And he's going and Ahab's gonna make what? A grove. So it's gonna give you an idea. So now the fertility rites are gonna be taking place in the groves. Now. Why would they be having fertility right? What, what would be the purpose of the grove? Baal's the god of what? Storms. And the fertility rites would be for what purpose? Fertilization. To make sure the crops are all fertilized. See, in a sense, it's kind of interesting. I was telling Cindy earlier this morning... Uh, ba- the Baal, as is Satan, is, was kind of an interloper. It would be a little bit like, like me saying, uh, I'm going to be the god of heat. And I am so powerful that I'm going to make Texas hot from, I don't know, I think maybe May through late September. So every time the temperature gets hot in Texas, you'll know that I'm powerful. Take what's going to happen and claim credit for it. And if you don't worship me, then it won't be hot. Uh, but you better worship me because it'll be, because, you know, then I'll be upset. Well, he was claiming, the Baal worshippers were claiming that the rains came and the dews on Mount Carmel, that, that moisturizing kind of stuff in the ground up, were all of those kind of things. And it was Baal that was the head of that. He, he he was responsible for all of that. And if you didn't worship him, with, then the rains wouldn't come and the dews wouldn't come. What a deal. So he gets to claim credit for something that's not his. But Ahab made a grove. Uh, and Ahab did more, interesting statement, to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. This is a bad dude. You know, he's just getting worse. <laughs> okay? So, what, what do we know? Uh, when, whenever there is great wickedness on the earth, how does the Lord offset that? He sends prophets in to... And what, what kind of prophet? <coughs> the greater the wickedness, the greater the prophet. Yeah. And so here's what's about to happen here. So on these days, now we can get over to verse 1. 
17. And now we're going to get Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead. <clears throat> now let's stop for a second. This is kind of fascinating when we look at we look at Elijah. Let's hop back over here for a second. Here's a here's Joseph Smith talking about Elijah. Elijah was the last prophet that held the keys of the priesthood. Man, this is like 800 BC. He was the last prophet that held the keys of the priesthood and who will, before the last dispensation, restore the authority and deliver the keys of the priesthood in order that all the ordinances may be attended to in righteousness. But wait, there's more. The spirit and power and calling of Elijah is that if you have the power to hold the keys to revelations, ordinances, oracles, powers, and endowments of the fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood and the kingdom of God on the earth, to receive, obtain, perform all the ordinances belonging to the kingdom of God, even unto the turning of the hearts of the fathers unto the children, the hearts of the children of the fathers, even those who are in heaven. That's Elijah. And we've got like four or five chapters on Elijah. Do we see anything in the Old Testament that suggests that Elijah is this kind of powerful? We really don't, do we? If you go into, if, if you ask, if you go into the Quran and you say, who are the great prophets of old time? Well, there was Muhammad and Moses and Elijah and Abraham. Ask the Jews, who's the, who is the great prophet of the Old Testament? They will say, Elijah. Elijah is present, is believed, is, is present at a circumcision. Not Abraham. At Passover, they're going to set a plate aside for who? Elijah. Elijah. He might show up. Elijah was the three Nephites before the three Nephites were the three Nephites. Elijah, because he was taken up into heaven, is seen to be the he is the wandering Jew. There's all kinds of stories in Judaism of this cloaked figure that showed up and sowed somebody's crops for them, or that they did this thing or that thing, and it's Elijah. Elijah, along with Moses, has this stature that transcends Abraham and everybody else. And we have just a few verses on it. And in, and in Mormonism, very few prophets are more important to us than Elijah. In other words, there is so much more to be told about Elijah and we simply don't have it. He is that great. He is that powerful. But we just don't have it. Now, so here comes, so at that moment of greatest wickedness in this northern kingdom of Israel, uh, Elijah the Tishbite, and he's going to, and he's going to now say to Ahab, he shows up and he says, as the Lord God of Israel liveth, 
before whom I stand. Now, what does that mean? Before whom I stand. He does walk with God. Now, would it make a difference, I think, in our callings and our own responsibilities if we said, in the, in the name of Jesus Christ, before whom I stand? Would that change what we do and how we do it? What if President Monson stood and said, here's what needs to happen, and in the name of the Savior, before whom I stand? Could, would President Monson say that? Sure he could. I am standing in front of this great individual and now I'm going to be his witness. I'm going to be his spokesperson. And when, and when you actually look up the, the translation of the word prophet in Greek, one of the synonyms for prophet is spokesman. I speak for him. I've been in front of him. I saw him. I talked to him. Here's what he wanted me to say to you and I heard it from his lips. Before whom I stand. Uh, there shall not be dew or rain these years according to my word. Now, let's go back. Baal is the god of what? Storms. The storms come because Baal says they can come. And he's deliberately going to call a plague down that will challenge this one exactly. For, and so that's why there's going to be rain, but also there's going to be no dews. Now we've talked we've talked before. If you go to section, uh, I didn't mark it here, so I won't take it there, but. If we if we talk if we look at section 128, and Joseph is is writing to the saints from Nauvoo and he's in hiding, and he's going to list all the things that this great God has done for us, and then he's going to say that the, that uh, God will continue to pour out blessings upon the saints as the dews from Carmel. Well, again, we've talked, we've talked before about the fact that Mount Carmel, where this epic battle is about to take place with the priests of Baal, it doesn't rain very often on Mount Carmel. It just doesn't, but it's very lush and green. Why? The dews. And the dews come up from underneath, and they come in a... They're there every morning. They're like manna. They're there. It's moist, and things grow. You don't necessarily need the rain because you've got the dews. So when he says, I, I'll make sure there's no rain and there will be no dews. What's he saying? Ah, pretty dry, right? It's gonna, we're talking drought, drought, drought. Now, the, Lord, the word of the Lord comes to him and says, Get thee hence, turn thee eastward, and go by the brook Cherith, which is before Jordan. Why? How come he's going to make this claim and then he's going to go hang out by the river? Everything's going to 
Right? Sure. There's one reason. Is what? Yes. Ahab's not going to be happy about this. And as we know subsequently, who else isn't going to be happy? Jezebel. This lady's got a temper. So he, he makes he makes the uh, prophecy, and then he's got to go hide. We don't know where the river Cherith was. That's where he went. And now he's going to... Uh, verse 6, The ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank to the brook. Now, we're just looking the... Uh, it's funny, the... Uh, the Hebrew Mishnah, you never know where these, these Hebrew traditions that are out there. They're not canonized. We don't know that they're scripture, but it's kind of fun. You know, one of the beliefs was that where did the ravens get their meat to, to take to, to feed uh, Elijah? From, from the. From, where? A roadkill, yes, that's nice. Those things are dying. No, the, the Hebrew Mishnah says that they got it from the table of Ahab. Then the crows would go in and they'd take the meat and stuff and then they'd fly it over. Uh, that was pretty great. So they would steal all of this stuff. Uh, and, and as Elder Holland has said, uh, I'm not sure that ravens were any bigger now than they are then, but i got to imagine these weren't gourmet meals. <laughs> that he's in the process of having to uh, eat every day what, off of what little bit the ravens would bring. Alright, so they brought him bread and flesh in the morning. And then, okay, now, after a certain period of time, even... Even the creek is going to start to run low on water. So he's going to have to go somewhere. Verse 10. So he arose, it says, and he went to Zarephath. Okay, Cindy, where is where's Zarephath? It is in Phoenicia. It's in Phoenicia. And it's up, way up. Probably, probably uh, 100 miles or so up the coast actually up into Phoenicia. He's no longer even in Samaria. He's no longer in Israel. So he's actually, he's hiding in Phoenicia. And now he's going to go up to Zarephath. Uh, to this little village up there by Tyre, up on the coast. That's why, how far away he has to get from Ahab to keep his life. And incidentally, we know, is he the only prophet running around here? No. We know that there are at least uh, another a thousand or so prophets, religious men, and that uh, to preserve those, one of the men inside Ahab's uh, royal family is actually hiding them like 500 at a time in caves, you know, and trying to keep them fed. But there is a, it's a, it's a religious scourging that is going on by Jezebel. She's cleaning the place out. And if you're a prophet, you better be hiding. And and generally what we found, and we'll say this over and over, when a city is ripe for destruction, they will do a couple of things. They will stone the prophets and they will starve the poor. 
Doesn't matter whether you are uh, Zarahemla or whether you are Jerusalem. Stone the prophets, starve the poor, and you're toast. Well, they are certainly stoning the prophets. Jezebel is cleansing all of these things. Okay, I would have guessed that the poor weren't standing very well either. Okay, now so he, he so he goes all the way up to Zarephath. Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Then he's going to say something peculiar. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman to sustain thee. Now, it's fascinating to me. If we'll look at... I've linked over to here. You can kind of go with me on this. Luke 4. We have this... We have this interesting... uh, Moment in the Savior's ministry. Remember, he goes up to he goes up to uh, Nazareth, and and they're saying, and he preaches in the synagogue, and they say, "Hey, while you're here, do a miracle. We thought you were just the son of Joseph the carpenter. Do a miracle for us." And he says, "No, not so much." Um, and then he says, verse twenty-four: "See, no prophet is accepted in his own country." And then he says in verse twenty-five, and this is Luke four. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, Elijah, when the heaven was shut out three years and six months. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, save who? And it's Sarepta, the city of Sidon, to a woman that was a widow. In other words, the righteous of Israel, those thought themselves righteous, were running all around, but they weren't going to get to see the miracle. The miracle was going to be seen by a Gentile woman in Zarephath, in Sarepta. And then he says, and by the way, there's another one that, and he'll use another case, and the other one is Naaman the Syrian. So he's going to name two great Gentiles in his mind that had great faith and they got to see miracles but because they were wicked they, they weren't going to get to see them. Okay? So this widow in, in Zarephath is on that level. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman to sustain thee. So he arose and went to Zarephath way up the coast and he came to the gates of the city. Behold, the widow woman was out there gathering of sticks. Now, I have to tell you, of all the stories in the Old Testament, there are very few that touch me like this one does. This, to me, is, is kind of on the level with Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac. It is on that level of sacrifice, I believe. The widow woman was gathering sticks, and he called to her, and he said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. Now remember, she's been commanded. How would he command her? Remember, she's she's been commanded to take care of Elijah. How would how would how would, how would, how would he have commanded her? Well, because of who he was, he probably just asked. How would the Lord have commanded this widow? Maybe a dream, maybe a vision, maybe just an impulse. 
In some way, she's being impelled. And, and you know from what she says that she doesn't have a clear vision of what she's doing either. Somehow she's being impelled to do this. And, and as she's going to fetch it, he calls out to her and says, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thy hand. While you're going to give me something to drink, bring me something to eat. Now, she's going to put it on the table here. He's like, well, you might as well just ask for a, for a great big turkey dinner, right? And as she said, as and listen closely how she says this, because remember, is she Israelite? No, she's Phoenician, she's Gentile. And as she said, as the Lord thy God, Liveth. Your God liveth. So, in this weird sense, she is a believer in his God. The Lord, as the Lord thy God liveth. I'm not sure about me. I'm Gentile. But I sort of believe that things seem to be not going well so for me. So, I don't know. Yeah, good question. That's why I say somehow she's being compelled. And it would be fascinating to get the rest of this story, whether she had a dream, saying there would be a prophet coming to take care of him. And that very could, easily could have happened. Or, you know what, just in her sweetness of soul, there's a man asking for water. She's going to get him water. He's asking for bread. And she's just going to lay it on the table. Yeah. Right. I think he was and, wearing the, the coats of prophets. And, and, by, and by watching the Ten Commandments. Yes. <laughs> you know, they, they knew that Moses was an was a Israelite baby because of the, the clothes that he was wearing. He was wearing the, the, the robe, the, the shawl. The, yeah. Easily could have been. Yeah, I think she's kind of at that level. See, in, in one case, I think she said this to Elijah the prophet. But my belief is, is that she probably would have said this to anybody who had asked her. I think that's just, she was, gonna, she was just at that place. As the Lord thy God liveth. And that, let me just put it on the table for you. Let me just tell you how things are. I have not a cake. But a handful of meal in a barrel with a loyal and a cruise. And I'm gathering two sticks. I don't need many more than two sticks. That I may eat it, dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. This is my last meal. And it's, it would have been one thing to say, I, I'm going to fix this for me and then die, but she's got a son. I only need two sticks. We have a little bit left. This is our last meal. So you're at what you're asking me to do is give my last meal. Now, 
Elijah says to her, Fear not, go do what thou hast said. But make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it to me, for, and then make one for thee and thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither the cruise of oil fail, till the, the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. Now, how unfair is that? Couldn't he? Couldn't Elijah easily have just said, "Tell you what, your oil isn't going to fail. The meal will be there. Make one for you and your son, and after you, and make one for me too." But that's not what he says. Yeah, I know you're about to die, but make one for me first. And after you have done that, then then you will find that your oil and the meal won't fail after. Why would he do that? Faith. Faith. He what? Blessings come after when? Trial of our faith sometimes. Okay? But again, isn't this grossly unfair? To catch a woman in this last extremity, it's like, this is going to be our last day. I know what we're going to do. We're going to eat the last of this. Then we're facing starvation. So it'll probably be another few days of agonizing death. We're already at that point where we're already starving. Yeah, I know, but make me a cake first. She might have been. Yeah. I just think there's such a level of, of belief and trust and sacrifice in this moment that transcends my ability to understand. Verse 15. And she went and did. Now one of the things that I would like to think happens is that, that there is a moment and again it's in the millennial movies when we get a chance to see the replay of this. I would like to think that when she was standing in, in front of this great patriarchal prophet with all the power and, and sweetness that he would have had that when he would look into her eyes and say, yes, but make me a meal first. And after you do so, you're going to be able to make one for you and your son. That the words wouldn't make sense, but what she felt from him would. That she would feel that draw. That she would feel that spirit. And she may not have... She's a Gentile. She's not used to being around prophets. But what she's feeling is something that impels her to just go and do. But that's still, on the level of trust and sacrifice, that's kind of off the charts, is it not?
especially if we were low. I was watching a show in the middle of my being sick over the weekend. Nothing is kind of helps you relax and feel comfortable like watching uh, screen preppers. And, and these guys that are going to extreme lengths because of the cataclysmic events that are coming and the bunkers that they're building and, and the stuff they're buying and how they're doing it. And it has some resonance with us as saints because we're trying to put stuff away. But it's funny for these guys that it's always about uh, 50-50 uh, get your food storage and 50-50 how many guns and bullets do you have to defend your food? And, you know, one, one guy has, a, has his bunker with all of his food, but he's got it set up in such a way so that if you, if you walk down the stairs towards his bunker, flames will come out along the sides of the walls, you know. And then if you make it, if, you, if you're not toasted by the time you get to the bottom of the stairs, and then you, you rattle the door, then this plate with spikes comes flying down, you know. And then on the other side of that, he's got all of his automatic weapons, so the people that don't get toasted or spiked, you know, then they're going to face a hail of bullets. Um, <laughs> and, and it's always a fascinating process to watch that, because at that point, and, and even as Latter-day Saints, you know, there's, okay, we're putting stuff away, we might need to have some weapons stored up to defend ourselves, and I just think it's fascinating because the reality is is that if, if a catastrophe were to hit, you're stake. And, and the stake is going to pull together and, and some of the stake are going to have prepared like crazy and some of the stake are not. Well, what is the bishop in your ward going to do? Ah, he's going to ask you to combine it anyway. Put your guns away and bring your storage. Yeah, but that's not fair. They didn't... Uh, yeah, I know. But that's not what wards and states do. Saints take care of each other. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, I, I know one of the ladies uh, in, in this episode I was watching, they go to a, a store and he was always buying a, a gold and silver stuff and then putting it in little tubes and burying it in his backyard. And so, so he bought like $2,000 worth of silver and they were putting it in PVC pipes and burying it and they were going to know where that was. Okay, that was going to be... But one of the gals in the, in the silver and gold stores, she says... If it all if if it all kind of hits the fan and it's going to be bad and everything, I know where I'm going. I'm going to his house because I know he's got it. He's got the stuff. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah.
they're all preparing all of that kind of stuff. Yeah? Yeah? seem to happen with us. We fight the elders over and everything's everything's pretty well gone. Everything's eaten. Okay. Alright, so here's here's the test. So Elijah's actually going to put that says um, and, and there's a difference here because she's going to say to him in verse 12 as the Lord thy God liveth and Elijah's going to say to her, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me there of a little cake first. 14. For thus saith the Lord, not my God, our God. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal shall not waste. And she went and did. Now that's that millennial moment when I want to see that look on her face. You know, when the meal just kind of keeps on coming. Yeah. Yeah, they're going to they're gonna actually kind of eat for years off of this. It will just, in other words, there's going to be a daily miracle for her, and the Lord provided. Yeah, perfect. Okay, she went and did, um, and and the barrel of meal wasted not, neither the cruise of oil failed. Now, I, I love this quote from uh, Elder Holland. The this woman is like another widow whom the sake Christ admired so much. She who cast her farthing, her two mites, into the synagogue treasury and thereby gave more, Jesus said, than all others who had given that day. Unfortunately, the names of these two women are not recorded in the scriptures. Why? Why, why don't, why, as great as these women are, why don't we have a name? 
I have a belief about that. Because if you think about the great women and some of the great experiences that we see in the Scriptures, the woman who touched the hem of the garment, uh, this woman, uh, the rich man, uh, the young rich man. I mean, we don't have their names. I, my own personal belief is that we don't have their names because it's easier to identify with them. That by them not having a name, we become them. We're, we're to see themselves, see ourselves as them. Unfortunately, the names of the two women are not recorded in the Scriptures. Listen to this, though, coming from an apostle. But if I am ever so privileged, in the eternities to meet them, I would like to follow their feet and say thank you. Thank you for the beauty of your lives, for the wonder of your example. I have this picture of Elder Holland actually meeting this with these women. And I have to tell you that I would be so moved as well. That if I were to meet the widow of Zarephath after this life, that I would be tempted to kneel at her feet as well. Because there is a purity of trust and belief and sacrifice that for me is just defies description. To be able to stretch out that kind of trust. Now, part of why it is that that this lady is such a wonder to me has also to do with the fact that she's also so very human and she's so very much like us. Because this is not the end of the story, is it? Sometimes we get caught up in this and we forget the rest of the story. So day after day after day now, the oil is there, the meal is there, and while others are starving and struggling, she has a prophet in her house and she's watching this daily miracle of the food being multiplied. And then look at this, verse 17. And it came to pass that after these things, the son... Remember the son that she was ready to lose? The son of the, of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick, and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath in him. Her son dies. After this great sacrifice and trust and the miracles, the son dies anyway. Now, listen to her response. And this is why, without a name, it's easier, to, I think, to place ourselves on her. To see us in her. Okay? And she said unto Elijah, What do I have to do with thee, O man of God? What have I done? What have I done? Art thou come to unto me to call my sin into remembrance? Put that in different words, what she's saying. Because I made a mistake a long time ago, I'm not being punished. Are you come here to punish me for my past sins? Now, we don't know what that past sin was. 
Was this son born out of wedlock? I don't know. Could it have been something as simple as I was gossiping and I shouldn't have been? Or was it something as great as that? I don't know. But in her mind, there was some sin in her past that the result was that she was now being punished. Do we ever do that? How easy is that for us to do that? Yeah. And he's talking to us and, and he says, um, If men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. And there is that sense that says when we start to come into the life of a, around somebody that's righteous, we start looking at ourselves in relief. And I think that's what happened to her. And, and, and it's also, brothers and sisters, it's also a very, very human thing to do that says, if my son has died, and this is causing me great pain, if I can look at the things that I did as the cause to that, and fix the things that I'm doing, then I won't have to go through the pain that I'm experiencing. It's a very human thing to say, I, I hate it that I caused it, but if I can figure it out, then I can make sure it doesn't happen in the future. But, I, but it's so human for her to say, my son died, are you here to blame me for my sins? Is this the real payoff? I have been kind of going along and thinking, feeling pretty good about myself that I actually went out on a limb and I made you the little cake and then the oil was there and the meal was there and I'm feeling really good and we get these daily reminders, day after day after day, God still loves me, there's more, there's more meal in the barrel. And then this comes and all of that begins to fall away and say, what have I done? Am I now being punished? Now, when we struggle in our life, don't we do this? How human is this? <coughs> that you can look in your life and you can look at those moments when you say, I have miracles. I remember the time that our we had more food after the missionaries left. I remember when I prayed for an answer in God. I remember when my kids were sick and then got blessed and became well. I remember the miracles. But at those times when life is going bad and you've had this tragedy come into your life, how far away was that miraculous... How far away is that miracle? How many miles away is that? Or how often when we get to those moments do we kind of say, well, maybe that wasn't the miracle I thought it was. Or maybe God was just playing with me. I just think this is so human. 
Now, what's even more amazing to this, though, is the, the reaction of Elijah. Did, did Elijah see this one coming? <coughs> he says, give me that son. He goes up to the loft. And then listen to verse 20. And he cried unto the Lord, and he says, Oh, Lord my God, hast thou, hast thou also brought evil unto the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? Elijah did not see this one coming. She's the one that, with this great faith, she fed me, she kept me alive and everything, and now you've killed her son? I don't get it. And you watch, the, the, the real Elijah, I think, and we're going to talk more about this uh, next week, when he does, he's about to do 40 days in the wilderness, and, and he's going to go through all of that process. This is a lot. You're watching a prophet growing here. You're watching a prophet being taught. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord, thou hast brought evil. And he stretched his, himself <coughs> upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came unto him and he revived. Prophets need to be tested and grown along the way as well. And the woman says to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God. She knew it from the daily miracles, but now she gets this spectacular experience with him. Okay. So, before we leave this, uh, this great widow, I just think this is one of those times that we take a look of all the, if you were going to say, of all, to take all the people all through uh, Israel, Samaria, and Phoenicia, isn't it fascinating that the Lord says, I have a prophet and he needs to be sustained, and, and who am I going to entrust to his care? Isn't it fascinating that the Lord says, I have people prepared, and generally the people that I have prepared are the least noticeable ones that you might ever guess. I have a restoration. I need the gospel to be restored to the earth. Who am I going to give it to? A young boy in the backwoods of New York. He did. Well, and Joseph, kind of like the, the widow of Zarephath, had been commanded and prepared before this life. That, that there was a blessing there, but but to the people around that, they never would have guessed that this person in their midst had that kind of calling. I'm sorry, I'll say this and then I won't say anything else. But uh, while I was studying this, I kept thinking about, uh, you know, a tale of two cities since the best of times and the worst of times. 
Yeah, that's true. With the worst of women being with the nation Jezebel. Right. The best of women being the widow of Both of whom are going to have contact with Elijah. That's that's a good point. The tale of two Phoenician women. Maybe that would be the story of this. Okay. In the time we've got remaining, let, let's uh, let's spend just a couple of minutes then on this is this is what Elijah is basically known for among most people, and that is uh, the great battle. Okay. So now it's time um, to uh, he's now it's now time to go call Ahab to accounting. He's going to leave Zarephath. He's going to come down the coast. He come down there and he's going to go in and he's going to say, "Now it's time to really know." And so he's going to come down. Look at verse seventeen. Now it came to pass that when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, and listen to this, I mean this is, this is so human. Art thou he that troubleth Israel? Now, who is it that's troubling Israel? Ahab. You're the one that brought Baal in. It's by your actions that brought the drought. You're the problem. But always, always, the wicked find a way to turn it around. You know, it's like it's like the drunk that staggers into the bar and, and wants a drink, and the barkeep says, what's the problem? He goes, my wife is driving me to drink. <laughs> I'm going to blame somebody else for my woes. The wicked have a tendency to do that. It's everybody else's fault, not mine. Art thou he the trouble of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that you have forsaken the commandments of God, and that thou hast followed Balaam. Now, now comes the setup. Now I have an idea. Let's just let's just set this up, shall we? Send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel. Okay? And the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, that eat at Jezebel's table. Uh, we're going to have, we're going to get them all together. Now, Elijah then is going to set this up a little bit. And Elijah said unto the people and said, and this is where this phrase comes from. How long halt ye between two opinions? What's the problem with that? What is the problem with halting between... Let me step back from that just a second. Have you ever been stuck between two opinions? You've been trying to get an answer to prayer and it's like you're standing at a crossroads and you can see... This is one possibility here. There's one possibility here. Should we move to Dallas or should we move to Fargo, North Dakota? <laughs> you know, should we continue to do what we're doing, sell everything that we've got, and buy a donut shop? 
Should I go on a mission or should I stay home? You know, what's it like at that moment of the crossroads and we're standing there? What's that like? It's stuck. How does that feel? It's distressful, isn't it? It's painful. So for one thing, we don't like to be stuck between two opinions. In a musical standpoint, I'm always aware uh, that, that great music has this dissonance to it. And when, when we're and it's like two chords that are clashing against each other, and when we run into dissonance, what are we waiting for? The resolution. It's got to resolve. It's the ah afterwards. It's like we don't like dissonance. We want resolution. I see I see people leaving the church because they can't handle the dissonance and it feels better to just walk away from it all rather than try and resolve it. They can't, the, being stuck between two opinions is not enjoyable. We want resolution. We want to move ahead. But the Lord is saying to us, how long are you going to stay stuck behind between two opinions? What does he have a problem with you being lukewarm? How come he'll spew you out? What's wrong with being stuck here? Because you're not making any mistakes, right? Is that the problem? Is that you don't progress? If I stay, because that's why we do it, right? The minute that I have to choose, that I'm starting to go down a road and I'm going to have to make choices, but if I stay right here without going in either direction, then I, don't, I didn't make a mistake here and I didn't make a mistake there. Why? Ah, that that if, if we if we have that attitude of not staying there, not only do we not progress, but we also haven't given our heart to where we where we need to be. But again, we're so afraid to make a mistake that we don't move. Oftentimes that happens, doesn't it? Sometimes not making a choice is making a choice. I've decided to stay. I've decided to not make a decision. Yeah, she, she's saying if you, you've got that last little bit of food and you're going to hold off not eating it, and while you're in the process of not eating it, it goes bad. Yeah. Well, that's the problem, is that does the Lord need lukewarm people? He needs people that have made decisions to move forward. He needs us not to be halted between... And, and so often, this is what I see... Uh, how many times do you see people that even in our wards that are trying to live between two decisions. I want to be I want to be really liked in the world. I want to be liked in the church, but I want to be liked in the world. So I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of pay obedience to both. So when I'm with 
the, the world people, I'm not going to really talk so much about the church. But when I'm with the church, then I won't talk so much about the stuff I do in the world. I'm kind of trying to have it both. It's this lukewarmness where we have made a decision that's not to invest our heart fully in what we need to do. And that's basically what Elijah is saying. How long are you going to halt between two opinions? They say, well, Elijah, what we were doing basically is hedging our bets. And, and Israel did this a lot. That's why it is that oftentimes it was not unusual to find an Asherah tree or an Asherah rod in the temple. Because some Israelite kings would say, yes, we believe Jehovah is God. But we're not quite sure about Baal, so we'll bring him in here just in case. So it's it's plan A. And we'll just worship a lot of gods. And one of them ought to be right. So no matter which one it was, hey, we had you covered. We put them all up here on the Temple Mount. No matter which one it was, we chose the winner. Be like yesterday saying, "I'm gonna, I'm going to cheer for the Cowboys and the Packers. That way, no matter who wins, I have a good time." How long will you halt between two opinions? Now, then he's going to set up a, a, this great experience where. And, and you know this story. We've told this one over and over. The thing that I love about this is the fact that uh, Hebrew tradition, Hebrew Mishnah says that here's what the priests of Baal would do on a regular basis. Is that they would build these great big altars. And they put the animals on it. And then what they would do is that out of the sight of the people, they would build this fire. And they would build a tunnel down underneath uh, the altar where it would then come out. And then at the right moment they would they'd have the fire going down here then they would open a gate and the fire would shoot through the tunnel up into the altar and so then they would say and now Baal is going to torch the altar. <clears throat> and then they go wow it's a great you know it's a great magician trick. In this case, Baal's going to do that, and 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 then you've got uh, a prophet of God uh, in the in the um, in today's language, uh, basically talking smack to these guys. Uh, he's basically saying, "I think your God's asleep. You got to wake him up. Maybe he's doing something else. Maybe you need to yell louder." Yeah. And where was it he says that? In where? 27. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Around noon, Elijah mocked them. He said, Cry aloud, for he's a God. Either he's talking, or he's pursuing, or he's on a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth. I must be awakened. You know, he's just like, just egging them on. And ultimately, and ultimately they're cutting themselves, trying something, and you know how that fails. And then ultimately, 
he's going to then build an altar. He's going to put the sacrifice on it. And then he's going to drench it in water. Why? I'm not going to do it the way you guys do it. There's no way, even if I had a hidden fire somewhere, if we drench this thing and it's covered in water, there's no way I'm, this, this can't be a trick. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench. Comes the evening sacrifice. It comes near. He prays. And uh, verse 38, The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked the, up the water that was in the trench. And then, then the people saw it. They fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is the Lord. They're quoting the Shema. This is from Deuteronomy 6. Uh, so we get this great moment and then they kill off the, the priests of Ahab and the priests of Jezebel get away because she wasn't going to send her her people to that. Okay? Okay. Alright. Well, we're going to stop here because there, there's a great parallel coming. This is going to be your homework assignment for this next week. Um, we have with with the the widow of Zarephath. There is this great miracle that occurs with her, and she she's able to see the work of the Lord. And then when the trial comes, then she's going to begin to doubt. Maybe it was my sins, and suddenly that miracle is a long ways away. Brothers and sisters, what we're about to see, what I want you to read in in 1 Kings 19 for next week, is now this great prophet Elijah, for whom he is the great prophet for three religions, will have his own moment of that, where the miracle and the battle on top of Mount Carmel just happened, and then there's going to come this juniper tree moment in, in verse 19. Where suddenly those miracles are a long ways away. And he's just stuck with life as it sits. And this is where I believe our lives, we can see our lives in them. Think about the times that you have had miracles happen in your life. If you're going to stand up and bear testimony about tithing or about the miracle of healings or something, you can, you can stand up and do that. Either in your own experience or people that you have known. But when we run into trial, we have temporary amnesia for those experiences. We forget. We, and, we, and we even start to question I hear this a lot in my office where I get people that have whose marriages are struggling, their marriages have become painful, maybe their marriages have ended. And they'll say, I don't get it. I know that when I prayed I was supposed to marry. And I know that this is what I was supposed to do. Now we're divorcing, or now it's painful, or now it's abusive. Why would the Lord why would he tell him to marry this guy? 
When we run into trials, we get the amnesia and we forget the miracles. And I want you to see how the Lord, because next week we're going to talk about how the Lord handles a prophet. And we're going to talk about juniper trees and wilderness and still small voices as He teaches this prophet. I pray that you'll be able to kind of catch the the spirit of what Elijah is, is going through and maybe see that in your own life. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord Heavenly Father, we come before thee at the close of this institute class with gratitude in our hearts. Heavenly Father, to be able to come here and able to ponder and learn on the scriptures. We're thankful for Brother Hinckley and for the time and effort that he puts into helping us. We're thankful, Heavenly Father, for all of our many blessings and pray that that will be with us this week, that we may be able to ponder on the things that we've learned today and that we may be able to read our scriptures. We're thankful again, Heavenly Father, for this Institute class and we say these things humbly in the name of Jesus Christ.